Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. For the first time since the first year of the college football playoff, no SEC team will play in the national championship. Alabama being eliminated, of course, in the Rose Bowl. We will unpack that game today on SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer with John Adams, and we have a lot to get into as we record this. Quinshawn Judkins, the star running back from Ole Miss, has entered the transfer portal. LSU at this moment still needs two new coordinators, and the Nico era is taking flight at Tennessee. So much to get to, John, but let's start with the Rose Bowl and Michigan and Washington in the national championship after Alabama. Um, I thought they got played in almost every facet, John, and yet still they came so close to winning that game. They were like one stop or one score away, despite the fact that Michigan just mauled them at the line of scrimmage. Uh, really from wire to wire. I mean, they had Michigan had 10 tackles for loss to Alabama's one. I thought that stat more than any other sort of summed up the game. And I thought the game ended pretty fittingly with uh, Alabama getting stopped at the line of scrimmage on, a, on their final fourth down. What was, uh, I was there in Pasadena. Uh, what was your take from afar of, of that game? I thought in a way, Blake, the, the game was kind of indicative of Alabama's season. Because as we watched Alabama go through this year, the inconsistency at quarterback early on, the the change, then return to Jalen Milrow, this never looked like a great Alabama team. And I think that's why some people say, well, this is uh, Nick Saban's best coaching job. He got this team and won the SEC and got it in the playoff. But when you really took a hard look at it, Alabama didn't have a a great wide receiver. It didn't have a great running back. Its offensive line was not, didn't rank with the best Alabama offensive lines. Its defense was good, but uh, it it just wasn't a typical Alabama team. So when we look at it in that from that perspective, we really shouldn't be surprised it lost to Michigan. I thought it would win a close game. And it was a close game. It just happened to lose it. And it was just kind of a a puzzling end to, okay, the the offense was so reliant on Jalen Milrow just kind of making a play. And that last play, okay, he's going to get in the shotgun. We'll snap it to him. Not very accurately on the snap, but we'll get the ball to him. And then we expect him to run through the Michigan defense and score. Um, yeah, it was just, as we reflect on it, maybe this team didn't belong in the playoff either, but it almost, as you said, it almost won the game. Yeah. And we discussed that when the playoff field was put together, right? Whether Alabama really deserved to to be in or not. Uh, speaking of deserving John, I mean, Michigan, I want to get more into the Rose Bowl in a moment, but Michigan's in this interesting scenario, and I wrote about this after the game. They, they've become the, the man in the black hat 
so to speak, right? Like they're the villains of college football right now. Jim Harbaugh was suspended for a total of six games this season, three at the start, and then three toward the end. They're under a pair of NCAA investigations, one for uh, potential recruiting violations, the other for um, the situation I think everyone in college familiars, everyone in college football is familiar with at this point, the sign stealing uh, allegations and not sign stealing from the sidelines. That is allowed, but sign stealing, uh, you know, going to opponents' games in advance and using recording devices to steal their their signs ahead of time. That is against NCAA rules, and that's what Michigan is being investigated for. So two NCAA investigations going on. Uh, the whole while, Michigan has taken on this like us against the world type mentality. They're, they're using these investigations as fuel as if like everybody's out to get them. I don't really know that that's true, but that can be a really powerful motivator. And so my question, John, if Michigan beats Washington in the national championship and is handed the trophy while they are under two NCAA investigations, while they have a coach who is suspended for six games this season, will you see them as an illegitimate national champion in any way? Should they have um, you know, a, a metaphorical asterisk, I guess, next to this title if they were to win it? Or do you say all is fair in, in college football, even if it's not really fair and you're cheating? <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't bother. I, I don't see an asterisk. I, I look at, uh, you know, what Michigan did. I mean, I kind of, I think everybody in college football does everything it can to win. And if it can get away with something, it gets away with it. Uh, Michigan got caught, but I don't look at it that way. Uh, I believe, uh, you know, and and it didn't, uh, maybe it was stealing Alabama signs too, because uh, I read your column and all the Michigan players were saying, hey, we knew what was coming. They probably shouldn't have said that because <laughs> some people read your, might have read your column and say, well, there you go. Those guys never stopped. They were relentless. Even when they caught, uh, sentenced, judged, they still kept stealing signs. But I don't think he had to steal signs to know Alabama would hand the ball to Jalen Milrow. I just didn't think it would hand it to him and run up the middle like that. Yeah, and I think the play was actually supposed to go off left tackle. You could see Alabama's right guard pulled left on the play, but the bad snap got it off to a bad start. And then Michigan had a defensive end come crashing in off the left side. And you could see Milrow kind of turn his head in that direction. And so I think he probably thought in that split second, boy, if I run left where I'm supposed to go, I might get beheaded because I got this defensive end coming untouched at me. And so he sort of charged right ahead. And actually uh, Alabama's right tackle, J.C. Latham, got pushed into uh, Milrow. And so really, if you want to credit someone for a tackle on that final play, it should be Alabama's right tackle tackling his quarterback, which, you know, as we've discussed, really kind of some put, puts a bow on the game, right? The fact that Alabama's <laughs> offensive line got blown. First of all, you have the bad snap and then you have Alabama's offensive line getting blown up to the extent uh, that a lineman is tumbles in and tumbles into the quarterback and, and ends it right then and there. But yeah, I'm with you. As far as the the Michigan thing goes, John, um, I would say it's fair to say that I'm a, I get up on the moral high horse a little more frequently than you do. Would you say that's that's fair in my column writing? Yes, you do. Definitely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and having said that, though, I look at these situations, okay, 
allegations of some petty recruiting violations, whatever. I, I mean, I think there's about 130 programs out there in the country that are cheating to some, some extent in recruiting, right? The sign-stealing stuff, I think that goes the, maybe a little against the code of coaches. Uh, you know, sign-stealing during the games, I would guess almost every team does that to some degree. Having a minion out doing some advance work with a cell phone in the stands. I don't know that everybody's doing that. I think that probably crosses the line. But is that enough to put an asterisk next to this season? No. Like for me, I, I'm, I'm more likely to get up on my moral high horse and shake my finger at somebody when when there's some actual harm being done here, when, when actual human lives are being affected uh, by the negligence of actions um, you know, of, of someone that I cover. In this case, yeah, they were trying to get away with something. They appear to have gotten caught. Harbaugh was punished. But to call them an illegitimate champion, as I think some would if they win this thing, that doesn't fly for me. I, th- if they beat Washington, they'll be undefeated. They'll have gotten caught doing some uh, toes across the lines types of things. They'll have taken you know, these suspensions that Harbaugh got, and they will have won it all. And to me, they'd be a legitimate champion. Blake, I think it, not requiring an asterisk, but I think if Michigan goes on to win a national championship, I think a lot of people, though, will look at it. Yeah, well, they're sure lucky they didn't have to go through Georgia to get that championship because, I mean, let's we. I won't get back into all how the committee says we want to pick the four best teams, but who thinks Georgia wasn't one of the four best teams? I know it lost to Alabama in the in the SEC championship, a three point game, but I, I just don't think anybody would have beaten Georgia in a playoff uh, scenario. Uh, so I think Michigan. That's where it was fortunate. It was. It wasn't fortunate that Connor Stallions was out there working his butt off to get signs from uh, Rutgers or whoever. It was uh, it was because it didn't have to go through Georgia. What a great point, John. Yeah, if, if there if, if illegitimate's too strong of a word, I mean, it's not an illegitimate championship if Michigan wins, not having to go through Georgia. But how incredibly fortunate, right, that Alabama won that SEC championship. The committee decided what it decided, which like you said, we don't have to rehash all that. Uh, we've been over that, but how, how very fortunate that Georgia, or excuse me, that Michigan could win this thing without having to beat Georgia themselves. If, um, you know, if there were any asterisks required that, that would be it. You make a, you make a good point there. Well, well, sometimes like we see it in an NCAA basketball tournament, a lot of times where the very best team gets upset and the team that upsets them then loses to a better team. And the better team was is left thinking, man, I'm glad we didn't have to have play that number one team. Uh, so it just works out that way. And we'll probably see more of that when we have uh, 12 teams in the playoff. Uh, but I, Georgia, I know Florida State was woefully outmanned, didn't have its quarterback, uh, had all the opt-outs and all that stuff. But Georgia, when it gets down to business, most of the time, not against Alabama, but when it gets down to business and it says, okay, we need to show people who we are. And it was just relentless in that 63-3 to game. It looked like a continuation of last year's national championship game against TCU. 
even when the backups came in and they came in early, but they were still playing at the high, same high level of efficiency. Coaches talk all the time about playing to a standard. Easy to say that, but in that kind of game, Georgia kept doing that. And I don't know. I know it's a 63-3 game, but I, it, it left a really favorable impression about Georgia with me. The predictable aftermath of the Rose Bowl, John, part of it centered around is Saban going to retire, has Saban lost his fastball, all those familiar narratives. And it's just funny to me because, you know, back in September, most of us were wondering if Saban had lost his fastball. They lost to Texas. They looked terrible against USF. Then there was like this 180, and people were calling this the the, the greatest Saban coaching job of all time. <laughs> now he loses... He loses to Michigan, the number one team in the nation, on a game that comes down to literally the final play. He'd just beaten Georgia, something no team had done in a few seasons. And now we're, you know, we're, we're having these questions again of, well, does Saban need to hang it up? I, I mean, I think the reality is, as is often the case, like somewhere in the middle, right? Like Saban's not as dominant as he was. I think some changes in the sport have impacted that to a certain degree with NIL and transfers. I also think it's natural when you've been doing something as, as long as he had, uh, has been, maybe the, maybe the fires don't burn quite as hot. Uh, and yet still this was a team that I think most of us did not expect to win the national championship coming into the year. I know I certainly didn't, uh, neither one of us picked Alabama to even win the sec West. And I think he's got a pretty good group coming back, Next year, he signed another good recruiting class. Yeah, they've got some notable departures. Dallas Turner, Chris Braswell, Kool-Aid McKinstry. I mean, they've got some some holes to fill here, and they have to get better on the offensive line. But there's some good pieces coming back, too, from a team that, you know, we didn't expect to win the SEC in the first place. So it's just, to me, it's a little bit comical to see this constant yo-yo on, on, on Saban and where the program stands. I think, for me, the fact is... The dynasty is over in so much as if we're defining dynasty as like what Alabama was. It, it's it's not what it was. I don't think it's immediately going to get back to what it was. However, Saban's still, you know, one of the best coaches in the sport alongside Kirby Smart. He's still signing great recruiting classes, and he's a play away from being in the national championship game with a team that most of us didn't think would be there. Doesn't mean he can't retire. I think when he does retire, it'll It'll come out of left field. I don't think there will be a year-long farewell tour like Coach K had at Duke, but <laughs> I don't think he's going to retire just because he lost it to you know a a Rose Bowl semifinal. If anything, I think that makes it more likely that he's he's going to keep at this because he probably wants to win one more. Yeah, it, it's really age discrimination, uh, Blake. Oh, here we uh, go. One of your favorite <laughs> topics, right? Joe? Yes. Uh, yeah, I have a a lawyer. Uh, on retainer working on that at all times for me. Uh, no, I, would you say that about if he were, you know, younger, you probably, you wouldn't say, is he, has he lost something? I don't think he's lost anything. I just think you can only stay at the top so long. And I think NIL and transfer portal have changed things. And I also think Georgia has risen to prominence. People said the same thing about Nick Saban when he lost to Clemson a couple of times. Uh, that, you know, it's, it's, and it's not a dynasty, but he's still making the playoff. 
And when I look at this Alabama team, as we said earlier, I'm like, well, how did this team make the playoff? I'm trying to think of another time, maybe against Clemson, when I thought Alabama lost the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball, but that's just not the case with Alabama's uh, best teams. I wonder if the assistant coaching is a factor. Um, you know, Nick Saban is always – he's he's always had high turnover. He just keeps plugging guys in, keeps plugging guys in, and it's worked spectacularly, that system. You, everybody's playing a Nick Saban defense. It doesn't matter who the defensive coordinator is. It's Nick Saban's defense. You're the foreman. You run what the boss man tells you to run. Offense – He's gone through all kinds of different offensive coordinators uh, and some really good ones. Uh, but when you have that much turnover, sometimes it just law of averages, it'll catch up with you and, and maybe you won't be as good in those areas. I'm not putting it all on the assistants, but Alabama's recruiting hasn't dropped off, but his player development dropped off. Well, but uh, I think an, an NIL and, and transfers are a, are a bit of an equalizer too, right, John? I mean, I think I think that has made it harder to stockpile and retain so much talent. I mean, you know, the, the, the amount of guys that want to sit around and be backups for a couple years in Alabama's system and then, you know, maybe start later in their careers is, is probably dwindling. And, and I do think it has made it a little and, – and with NIL too, it, it's allowed – Alabama is still signing. Alabama and Georgia are still doing the best in, in recruiting. But I think, you know, there are some one-off examples of programs being able to sign some players, thanks to NIL, that they wouldn't have been able to, say, even five years ago. So I think there's been a number of challenges. I agree with you on on coaching staff. And I'm still not sure that Saban got his offensive coordinator hire right a year ago. I mean, Tommy Reese, I thought, had a terrible first month of the season. Then a lot of folks in our positions, not necessarily you and I, John, but people that do this for a living were anointing him as like the greatest hire of all time after Alabama turned things around in the last couple months of the season. I was more wondering, like, why did it take Tommy Reese that long to get some obvious truths figured out about this Alabama offense? And then on the biggest stage, I didn't think Tommy Reese had a very good showing uh, in the Rose Bowl. Certainly, uh, Michigan was the better coach team in that game, and Alabama didn't have a lot of answers. So, yeah, I agree with you to some extent on the staff, particularly you know, Saban's offensive coordinator hire. I don't, I don't know if he got that one right and time will tell, but as you look at Alabama going into next season, John, do you see like maybe a greatest need for next year? We know Milrose set to come back, set to be the, you know, the returning starter there at quarterback. They got some pieces back around him. I mentioned some of the notable losses, but of, of everything there that you see, what's Alabama's greatest need right now? Uh, well, this is a sad commentary on Alabama because I have a hard time deciding what is the greatest need because there are multiple needs. Uh, let's start with quarterbacks. Uh, Jalen Milrow, I just thought, came on spectacularly after he regained his starting position, starting position after struggling against Texas, and I guess it was game two. But I'm still not sure if you can win a championship with that guy. I th you beat Georgia with that guy, so that that convinced me, yeah, you can win a championship. 
but I really thought Michigan really honed in on Jalen Milrow, what he could do, what he couldn't do, and what he was limited by the cast around him. If you take away Milrow's deep ball, he throws a great deep ball, but Michigan took that away with both their pass rush and their their perimeter defensive backs did a great job in downfield coverage throughout the game. If you take that deep ball away, Alabama's offense becomes much, much, much more limited. I mean, Milrow can still run it then, but he's usually not going to dink his dunk his way down the field you know, with short passes like Bryce Young could do. He's really a deep shot artist and a run game guy. And if you take the deep ball away, that, that really does change the look here. And, and I want to insert an idea, John, to kind of bring this forward. I mentioned at start, Quinshawn Judkins in the transfer portal from Ole Miss. Now, I don't know that as we think about Alabama's greatest needs, they got a lot of them, as you said. Running back could be one of them. Judkins is one of the best in the nation. Running backs maybe don't mean what they used to in football. They don't. But Judkins is awfully good. He would look pretty good in a an Alabama uniform. He'd look good in a lot of uniforms. Uh, maybe another school in the state of Alabama, too. But what do you think about that idea? Oh, I think it's a great idea. I go back to Jameer Gibbs from Georgia Tech and what he, he meant to Alabama a couple of seasons ago. So, yeah, uh, that's... Definitely a that would definitely be a great get. But even if Alabama gets him, I still wonder about the offense. I wonder about the offensive line. It's best lineman's going pro, JC Latham. It's a wide receiver core. I you know, they they're they're okay, but they're not what it used to be. And maybe you can't ever get back to what it used to be when you had Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddle, uh, Judy, all those guys that were future first-round draft picks. But uh, there's nobody – when I look at Alabama's wide receiving core, is there anybody out there that opposing defenses say, okay, we got to take this guy away. We got to deal with this dude because he can beat us. And nobody yeah. liked that. As I think about Michigan's game-tying touchdown, John, juxtaposed against some of what we saw from Alabama, if you remember, late in the fourth quarter, J.J. McCarthy executes a play-action fake, just a beautiful play call, had a wide receiver kind of in motion, get into the flat, wide open, and McCarthy flicks a four-yard touchdown pass to him to tie the game. I thought, that is a play that is not in Alabama's arsenal right now. They either don't have the quarterback or the wide receivers or you know, the offensive play calling or the line or a combination of all those things to draw up and execute what Michigan did there. A little play action fake, a toss into the flat for a short yardage score. Jalen Milrow didn't do that one time this season against an FBS opponent. He only had two short yardage touchdown passes all year. They were against Chattanooga. Great deep ball artist, great running quarterback, but I think Alabama's offense has to become a little bit more dynamic it's not just on the quarterback. Their line's got to be better. I think their their wide receivers, they can get open downfield. But, you know, when it's third and seven and you need to move the chains, I trust Brock Bowers to get eight yards down the field and find a hole. And, and Carson Beck's going to find him most times, more times than not. 
Uh, obviously, Bowers is head of the NFL now. But my point is, I don't know if Alabama has that guy. They don't have the line. I think they could use a running back like Judkins. You were talking earlier that the needs of this team, it's not just one thing, and yet they still have a lot of talent coming back and um, and the number two signing class coming in. So point being, I think Alabama's on like the three or four team short list for, for your favorites for national championship going into next year. And yet they've got more question marks than they usually did at the height of Saban's dynasty, I think. Yeah, Blake, when we look at what Michigan did and really beat Alabama by a greater margin what the score said, I think we would agree on that. But why didn't Georgia do that? Uh, And and I go back and I look at that game, and I just think how little things that became big things. with uh, Brock Bowers was not at 100%. Uh, He's Georgia's best player. Uh, Lad McConkey, I don't know if he's been 100% all year, Georgia's best wide receiver. Uh, those little things, uh, good enough to play, but n- not good enough to be the star player of which they're capable. And in a championship-type games against another good team, those those shortcomings are magnified. But I wonder about Ge- why couldn't Georgia's defense – do what Michigan's defense did. Is Michigan just better? Well, I mean, Alabama didn't exactly go wild against Georgia either. I think I think Georgia lost because Bowers wasn't healthy. They missed a field goal after a penalty, and they fumbled inside the 10-yard line, right? I mean, you know, Alabama, they scored 27 points against Georgia, but not like they hung half a hundred on them. I know, and, and I guess what it really comes down to, Blake, is when you, what did the winning streak reach for Georgia? Was it 28 or 29? 29, yeah. 29. When you win 29 games in a row, some of those games are playoffs. Some of them are against prime SEC competition. When you, You're just going to have a day in a game that matters where things don't go your way or don't go the best way, and that that's what that amounted to, I think. I want to get to LSU, John, a team that got a lot of fanfare in the uh, preseason, including from you and I, and they did get to 10 wins, so they have 20 victories through Brian Kelly's first two seasons, and yet in year three, I think, is when a lot of people expect more of a coach, right? Especially more of a coach making what Brian Kelly's making, who's being paid what Brian Kelly's being paid, uh, or excuse me, who who has his track record um, for success. I think the bar goes up in year three, and yet Kelly's dealing with some important player departures, Jaden Daniels, Malik Neighbors, Brian Thomas. They're all headed for the NFL. Uh, His offensive coordinator, Mike Denbrock, left to go back to Notre Dame. He fired almost everyone on his defensive staff after just the terrible season on that side of the ball this year. So this is a a fork-in-the-road moment for Brian Kelly, and I'm not saying he's approaching the hot seat. He's not. But what I am saying is he's approaching a very, very important offseason where he needs to make two good coordinator hires. I think he needs some more transfer talent. They've been pretty quiet in the portal this offseason. This, to me, feels like a big moment that is going to define Brian Kelly's tenure. You know, if he has a long, successful go at LSU, I think we're going to look at this offseason and point to, yeah, I made a couple good coordinator hires. He 
he got things going to another level. Or we're going to look back on this offseason and say he lost Jaden Daniels, uh, couldn't get the right coordinators in place, and you know it was all downhill from there. What do you make of the moment right now facing LSU? Yeah, when you're making the kind of money Brian, Brian Kelly is, when you're making it in a place like LSU, which doesn't have a history of great patience with mm-hmm. football coaches, which expre- expects to win at the highest level, which will expect to make the playoff next season, I think if he doesn't make the playoff, a 12-team playoff next season, he will be on the hot seat. That's just the way it goes. Uh, so I wonder how much of Brian Kelly's decision in in cleaning house with his defensive staff was that, hey, I better make sure everybody knows, hey, not my fault. Hmm. <laughs> these, these clowns can't coach. I'll get rid of them. Or how much you want. And so he's using it as a ploy to take, take the focus off him. Like, again, I didn't do anything wrong. Just hired the wrong guys. Or does he sincerely believe these guys aren't getting it done? I can do better, and I'll go out and get better coaches, and we'll come back stronger than ever. And I thought back to something else when I saw that story. I think I read it in your column. I know you did a one-on-one with Brian Kelly before last season, and it may have been a quote in your story or another story, but he talked about that his big year would be in 24. That's right. Not, yeah. not 23. See? Yeah. And, I, and you're right. Kelly and I did talk about that back in June. And I asked him when he expected LSU to seriously contend for a national championship. And I expected him to dodge the question like most coaches would. He didn't. And he pointed to 2024. And so now we've arrived at that, this moment where he's got to replace his star quarterback, his two star wide receivers. I, in his coordinators. And when I looked at their, their win over Wisconsin in the bowl game, I thought it was important that they got the win and Garrett Nussmeyer threw for almost 400 yards in that game. Nussmeyer is not going to be a repeat of Jaden Daniels, but I think he's going to be a, a good quarterback. But still, I thought, is a team that just beat Wisconsin 35-31, is that ready to be a serious contender for a national championship next year? And I thought, no, they're not, especially when you consider those wide receivers leaving. And so I do think this is a this is a huge moment for Kelly. Again, we want to be careful here. I'm not saying hot seat moment, neither are you, but it's year three in a coaching tenure. That's when the expectations start to get real. And if you're a program like LSU, that's where going, I think, 10 and three is no longer a season for, for celebration. I don't know if it was this year probably wasn't, but it's certainly not going to be next year. I think what made the, a, a 10 and three record on its surface is not that bad. It's pretty good. Even if you want, you aspire of course, to make the champ uh, playoffs, but if you fall short, it's not, it's not horrible, but it was kind of the way LSU went 10 and three where the defense you, it's as though you wasted an incredible year. Right. I mean, how many times will you have a quarterback who's one of the best open field runners in the country and who also regularly throws for 300 and something yards and leads the nation in total offense, uh, leads quarterbacks, I guess, probably in rushing yardage. 
Uh, he was high in pass efficiency. He won the Heisman. Uh, how many times do you get that kind of quarterback? Well, LSU can say, well, we had, I had Joe Burrow. And they won the national championship. Ne- with won the national right. title. Never lost a game and really didn't come close to losing many games. So that is what be, and you're going to talk about, again, you've got two NFL wide receivers out there. Uh, I mean, high round draft picks, maybe both first round draft picks. Um, so yeah, that's how it will be. That that's to me is what made it different. It's like the defense, if it were just an average defense, just average, you could have you could have won another game. But to be that bad, it was uh it was a major problem. Yeah, I, I think LSU's defensive coordinator hire might be the biggest assistant hire of the offseason. Last year it was Alabama needing an offensive coordinator. Tommy Reese, I didn't think was a home run for Nick Saban. Still don't think was a home run. I don't think it was. A, it wasn't a three pitch strikeout either, but it wasn't a home run. And and now we look at this most important hire of the off season for Brian Kelly. Um, I think it's it's a big moment for him. He's got to hire an offensive coordinator too. But of the two, as bad as that defense was, that to me is the defining hire um, as far as assistant coaches go in the SEC this off season. Well, uh, LSU hasn't been uh, hasn't been shy about opening the checkbook and paying assistants a top dollar. So I'm sure uh, he will have a lot of choices. And I don't know uh, how easy it is to work for Brian Kelly and from a coordinator standpoint. I think that always factors into it. Uh, he's more of an offensive guy, so I would think he can kind of turn it over to his his DC and said. It's your baby. Uh, so maybe LSU can get a really quality uh, defensive coordinator. That's certainly a possibility. Uh, but it was just – and the other thing that comes to mind with that defense, and I think this eventually reflects on Kelly, is Harold Perkins looked like he could be, as a freshman in 2022, looked as though he could be the best pl- defensive player in the country. I mean, he had that kind of potential. He made plays all over the field, and they defined a different role for him. Kelly talked about that in preseason. LSU followed through with it. And it was though LSU, not the opponent, frequently seemingly took him out of a game. And he's your your, uh, main guy back there. So I think that adds to – that raises more questions about the defense. Yeah, when Kelly's interviewing defensive coordinators, he might want to ask the question of, uh, hey, how would you use Harold Perkins? How, how would you get more out of him uh, than what LSU got out of him this year? Put put that on the list of questions he can uh, he can throw throw the way of a candidate for that that job. How about this this one before we move on, John, as we close up on Brian Kelly before we get to Nico and the Nico era taking flight at Tennessee. But you know, the, the rumors and the rumblings the last few weeks about, oh, what happens if Jim Harbaugh leaves Michigan after this season for the NFL? And Brian Kelly was asked, would he be interested in that job? And, and Brian Kelly addressed that. He said, I wanted to be at LSU. I love it here. I'm not going anywhere. He said, quote, this is the last stop on the Coach Kelly caravan. Now, I trust a coach's pledge of allegiance about as much as I trust an emailer who says a Nigerian prince needs my financial 
support. Uh, I, I put them sort of in the same category of trustworthiness, right? So I don't, I don't care about this Pledge of Allegiance from Brian Kelly, but uh, pledges aside, what do you think about this, this two-part idea that Harbaugh would leave Michigan for the NFL? I, I, I kind of buy part one. That, that by that possibility, Harbaugh's long flirted with the NFL, and now he's got, you know, the NCAA's posse closing in. If he wins a national championship, he could go out in a blaze of glory and get out of there before uh, the NCAA catches up with him. But what about part two of even if Harbaugh leaves, would Brian Kelly really leave LSU for Michigan? Possibly, as you say, his declar- declaration of devotion. Uh, last stop on the Kelly Caravan, coaching wise, uh, no, that didn't, that doesn't sway me. But think about why he left Notre Dame. He took Notre Dame to two playoffs, college football playoffs. Didn't win, but I thought the team went as far as it could. Mm-hmm. He's won wherever he's been. He chose to go to LSU. And it wasn't a case of him needing to restart his clock, as so many coaches do. It was simply a case of, I think I got a better chance of building a national championship team, not just a playoff team, but a championship team at LSU. Hey, Les Miles won a national title there. Ed Orgeron won a national title there. I can outcoach those guys in my sleep. So the LSU job was really appealing to me. To him, so he if he researched this thing at all, and surely he did. Of all people, Brian Kelly researched it, right? Okay, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, just so, knowing him a little bit, like he's he's a guy that's going to do his homework. Yeah. Well, if you do your homework, you know, you will not. Uh, the fan base there will have incredibly high expectations. Uh, I, I mean, and they so much they they will expect you to win and win big. And I think he had to know that. So just because he got some criticism this year and just because things didn't turn out as well as he'd hoped, um, I don't think that would cause him to go to Michigan. Michigan has high expectations too. But when you look at Michigan, what does it have to do? It has to beat Ohio State. Now in the big, the expanded Big Ten, well, okay, it'll have to beat Southern Cal, Oregon, and Washington. So it's a bigger challenge. But I, if I were Brian Kelly, I would, I would stick it out at LSU. I, I just think, I, you I can, think you're right, John, and, and and I think you made a good point. Like he didn't leave Notre Dame to reset the clock. He left for what he perceived as a better situation at LSU. Um, he's still got that situation at LSU. The, the clock might be closing in on him. He expected in year three and four, I think, to reach a higher plane than he did in years one and two. But, I mean, what's the worst thing that happens for him if it doesn't work out at LSU, right? They got a stroke of Jimbo Fisher-type buyout <laughs> to get to get rid of him. I mean, he signed a 10-year, like $95 million contract, fully guaranteed, right? So, I mean, this is only year three. If If LSU decides after, you know, four or five years that the Kelly – the Kelly experiment didn't didn't work out. Well, it's got to cut him a fifty million dollar check thereabouts to go away, right? So I mean, it's a win win for Brian Kelly. He either gets his national championship that he came to LSU to achieve, or he gets 
you know, $50 million buyout or whatever it would be at that moment to go away. And you're right. I think the only way he would leave LSU is if he thought there was a better chance to win a national title elsewhere. And I think if you looked at the history, you know, here in the last 25 years, LSU's had it better than Michigan's won more national titles than, than Michigan. So I think he's fine right where he at, he's at. He just needs two new coordinators and, and he needs to solve that, that defense. He doesn't need a new job. Well, one thing I guess that kind of speaks to Brian Kelly's confidence. A friend of mine lives in Brian Kelly's neighborhood. It's on uh, out by the Lake University Lakes, East, East Lake Shore Drive. I didn't Brian know you were friends with such highbrow, uh, deep-pocketed individuals, John. That's well, I am. Okay. But I, I'm not highbrow. <laughs> I guess I don't fit into that, and I don't fit into that category. But no, you don't. But neither do I. Yeah. I just happen to be friends with these people. Uh, but they were surprised that Brian Kelly would live there. He doesn't live in a gated community. Hmm. And so that tells me, well, he's not worried too much about, I can't believe he'd be that naive to think, well, this could be a problem. (laughs) I need a, I need a gatekeeper out there. So that tells me though, he's very confident what he can do there. And again, going back to your, your column and your interview with him this past summer when he's saying our year is 2024. Well, somebody will bring that up to him in 2024. John, as we close, I want to get to uh, Tennessee. Nico Iamaliava. I won't make you say his last name. That'll be an off-season project for you. But the uh, the much-anticipated first start of Nico's career for Tennessee goes off about as well as as uh, Vols fans could have hoped. Joe Milton opted out of that bowl. Nico played well, not just with his passing, but also his running. And Tennessee routes Iowa, and the Nico hype is is off and running. Right. I mean, it's it's not a matter of whether Nico can win one national title. It's like how many or, <laughs> how many national titles he's going to win? How many Heisman's is, is he going to win? Right. Like that is some of the um, some of the chatter after that game. And some of it's hyperbole, but I think some of it, uh, you know, people really believe this. Right. So how good was was Nico? I know, you know, you cover Tennessee, you wrote a column about his performance. Uh, how good was he? Why the heck didn't he start? all season does that make you concerned about josh heupel's judgment of talent at all and and uh have you uh, started up the uh, nico for heisman campaign for next year yes and i've even practiced saying nico iama leava that's as close as you've ever come i think yeah and and i notice you're not pronouncing that a lay i think that's correct pronunciation i shouldn't call you out in a public forum but you might want to check that uh we'll get uh, nico on the podcast next uh, week yeah probably just i've heard it i've heard it different million dollars in the I, i've heard it different ways on uh, on television but i have worked on it and i eventually got to a tongue of Aloha down without a hitch so i thought his performance was spectacularly spectacular and yes it raised questions about why he wasn't playing more all season He's a much better fit for this offense than Joe Milton ever thought of being. He's a more talented quarterback than Joe Milton thought of, of being. And it's not the first time a Josh Heupel's picked the wrong quarterback. He picked the wrong quarterback when he took Joe Milton over Hendon Hooker to begin the 21 season. Uh, 
two games of that convinced him to put Hendon Hooker in as his quarterback. At the very least, Tennessee should have had a red zone package for Nico. I like that idea. Maybe he doesn't have the full reins wire to wire, but why yes. was he not incorporated to some degree more than he was? I, I think that's a good point. He's such a threat in the red zone because of his running ability. He scored three touchdowns, but it was the way he scored that impressed me. He's just what Joe Milton wasn't, a quarterback who has a great feel for the game of knowing when to throw, when to run, where to run. And those first two touchdown runs were just, he just kind of glided into the end zone. He made it look so easy. That's one thing that impressed me. So did his control of the offense. That impressed me too. But really the big thing with those cross field throws he made, they were on a line. They were thrown effortlessly. It wasn't as though he had to wind up and make that throw. They're NFL quarterbacks who can't make those throws. He can make them right now as a freshman. Uh, and when I look ahead to next season, the SEC is going to be better in quarterbacks than it's ever been. Even better, I think, than in 2021, in part because there are just more teams with Oklahoma and Texas. But going into next season, Carson Beck of Georgia, because of his efficiency, his accuracy, just control of the offense and experience now, is probably the only quarterback I would take over Nico. That's how good I think oh, he'll be. Oh, wow. John, yeah. you're dipping into your power rankings for quarterbacks. And yes. You, you just dropped a bombshell. Well, I can't let you we, – we can't head out the door before uh, digging into that a little bit further. Uh, we, we we may save this uh, the longer discussion for a future episode, but I, <laughs> you just teased a, a big one there. You, you said the start of your quarterback power rankings next year would start with Carson Beck from Georgia, number one. Then you'd have Nico, based off this route of Iowa and and uh, all the hoopla that preceded that, you'd have Nico, number two. So let's go one or two spots further, and I'm sure I'll forget somebody, but I just got to throw out a few names for you. Of course, there's Milrow at Alabama. Jackson Dart finished his season on a high note with Ole Miss. They, they destroyed Penn State. Brady Cook coming back from Missouri. You got Quinn Ewers coming in from Texas, assuming he's he's back next year. So at all, the, I'm, I'm probably leaving something out, but at all those mess of names, who do you like as you go further on your, your power rankings list beyond Beck and Nico? I'd probably go Quinn Ewers of Texas third if he comes back. I think he'll come back. He's very mobile. He's accurate. He's he's won big games, even though he lost a big game the other day. But there's something about him I, I don't I can't pinpoint it. I just don't feel like he's always gonna make the right throw. Uh those those last uh flings into the end zone, I didn't think he gave his receiver a chance to make a play there. So uh and then I would probably take Jalen Milrow just based on sheer athleticism and his just deep throwing ability. And then I would go Brady Cook. I love Brady Cook. Plays the game with such flair. I mean, so determined. Uh, got a lot of criticism early in his career. I think that helped harden him. 
throws a good ball. He doesn't have the arm strength that some of the best QBs does, but he's also a really good runner. And then I'd go five, Jackson Dart, who to me is kind of like yours. I don't trust uh, Dart to always make the the best play. Uh, I'm always kind of afraid, and it goes back to the 22 season, I guess, when he was more interception prone, that he'll make the big mistake. But he's talented. I don't deny that. So that's what five quarterbacks I've named. Uh, you're six deep now. You're, you're six your deep. Six I'd probably is, go. Yeah. Yeah. You, go, you, to, to review here, John, I want to give you a second to reset. You got Carson Beck one. You've got Nico two. Quinn Ewers is your number three. Jalen Milrow is your number four. Brady Cook is your, your five, followed by Jackson Dart. Six. I I really I've I've kind of changed my mind on Dart a little bit. He he played really well. Yeah, he uh, did. for most of the season. I'm not as worried so much about him making mistakes at this point. But it it's hard to crack that top five. I, I really don't have a huge problem with you having him at six there. Um, I, I wonder if you might be knee jerking a little bit on Nico based on one game against Iowa. But uh, nevertheless, I, I don't take too much exception with your top six. Maybe would reorder a few guys. Um, and then there's also Garrett Nussmeyer. Have you seen enough from him to consider him at, at this juncture? Or would you continue your pecking order uh, in some other direction? I won't make you round it out through number 16, but I'm wondering if you got one or two more guys here beyond your top six. Yeah, I'm, I mean, Nussmeyer, I, you know, he's been productive when he's played. He played well in the bowl game. Um I don't know how he'll do over the course of an entire season. I'd probably have some, him seventh, and then I would go with uh, Oklahoma's freshman. Yeah, Jackson Arnold. Jackson True. Arnold, um, mm-hmm. another five-star guy who passed for, I think, 361 yards in a bowl game in a in a loss to Arizona. He threw three interceptions. One was a deflection the receiver should have held on to. I don't hold that against him. But I can see – and it's kind of like with Nico, I, I'm going, and look, these guys are all so good. Being seventh or eighth on this list is not a condemnation that you you can't play. These guys can all play. I just liked his throwing mechanics. I, I'm not a great student of that, but he was just so smooth with his release, uh, made various throws successfully. He was, again, he showed the – that composure, and he wasn't shaken when he threw two early interceptions. I thought that was significant. Uh, and I go back to Nico. If you look at his stats, he's 12 and 19 for 151 yards. So somebody could look at that and say, What's the big deal? Well, well, one thing he was playing against a good defense, but the other were just it was the eye test, it was the nature. It was the nature of throws. I mean, in my career, long that it is, I've seen a few guys that I just saw for the first time and thought, man, this guy, he's big time. He's going to – maybe he's a running back or a receiver or a quarterback. And I'm wrong about a lot of things, but I was right about those guys, and I think I'll be right about Nico. Final thing, John, we've been picking games all season. We might as well pick – the final one. Uh, we were three and two, by the way, in our uh, bull picks. That's that's something. <laughs> Drop the uh, confetti. <laughs> yeah. If I had a winning week, man, let's send in the send in the band and the clowns and the cheerleaders. 
celebrate. Maybe we should just go out on top after a three and two week yeah, in, in and, our bowl and, picks. And, but and really next year, let's don't pick bowls. It's just impossible to pick bowls. You don't know who's going to play, who isn't, who cares about playing, who doesn't. Send in the clowns. I like that. <laughs> uh, all right. So final one, John. It's uh, Michigan's a four and a half point favorite against Washington. Uh, I'm going to take Washington in this one. I think they might win the game. I like getting four and a half points. I got some confidence for my three and two record last week. I'm I'm covered in confetti. And I think it's going to be purple confetti after Monday night. I'll take the Huskies. You know, I probably should have picked Washington to win the championship when it when it made the playoff field. As we've discussed, I've been following the Pac-12 all year. I thought it was a terrific conference. And I penalized for Washington for not looking dominant, for winning so many close games. But now when I look at it, I think of that as a plus. It makes the plays under pressure. And in that conference, it played a lot of good teams that can score. I don't know if Michigan can score with with Washington. And, And Washington, Michigan's defensive front, as good as it might be, it will not dominate Washington's offensive line. That's a much better line than what offense, the offensive line than what Alabama has. That's right. It's a more dynamic offense. It's a better uh, rounded offense at Washington. I We could have, John, in the final gasp of the four-team playoff, we could have the best playoff we've ever had. I don't want to give the committee too much credit because we've been <laughs> over. <laughs> we don't think they got the four most deserving teams. We also don't think they got the four best teams. But what they have done this year so far is created a, a good television show. And I suspect <laughs> that was maybe the unspoken goal or one of the unspoken goals all along. We got two good semifinals. Uh, we've had that before. Last year, we got two good semifinals and then had a blowout in the national championship. But College football has never gone three for three in the playoff era of having three compelling games, both the semifinals and the championship. I think we might get it. We're two thirds of the way there. I think this championship could be a good one. Yeah. And I think the only way to improve on a good championship game, we take it one step further and say, winner plays Georgia (laughs) for the whole thing. Whole ball of wax. Winner plays Georgia. Maybe that's what the committee had up its sleeve when it ranked Georgia number six. It was going to shove them in mid mid January uh, at plus one. You know, at one point college football, there was talk of a plus one format, right, to determine the national championship. You played uh, it was almost like three teams or something. I forget that format, but they they called it a plus one situation, right? This would be the plus one. You win you win the playoff, and then you still got to beat the defending national champion to claim the the crown. Uh, no shortage of ideas here on SEC Unfiltered. No shortage of love uh, from John for Nico. And we even got a peek at John's quarterback power rankings uh, for next year. Uh, we'll be back with you next week after the national championship. Thanks for listening to this edition of SEC Football Unfiltered. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.